<clears throat> so you're supposed to be cheering for me right now. It's my birthday. No, it's not the same when I have to ask for it. That was your cue. She set you up so well. <sighs> Worst birthday ever. All right, hey, my name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City, and we are in week two of our teaching series, Four Small Words. We're walking through the whole Bible, and we're doing it in just four words, four main movements that really tell the whole story of the Bible. We're doing this so that you, if you've ever felt intimidated by the Bible, overwhelmed by the Bible, or you're new to the Bible, or maybe you've been reading the Bible a long time, but you kind of lost the forest through the trees, this is for you, so that you can understand the Bible more, so that ultimately you can have a deeper relationship with the God who gave you this book, and you can know him on a saving level, a transforming level. And we're doing it so that you can actually be able to share the story of the Bible without feeling intimidated with others so they can know about God's love. So we've talked about four words. If you missed it last week, that's okay. You can go back online and catch up. But we'll give you a quick summary right now. The first word is? Oh, good job. Okay, so you, oh, you showed up for that, but you didn't show up for cheering for my birthday. I get it. It's fine. <laughs> first word is of, and that is really about you being created in the image of God. We looked at that last week. Second word is? Between. Between. Sin comes between us and God. We're going to look at that today and next week as well. Third word is? God comes to be with us. God with us. We're going to look at that in a second. And the last word is? In God in us. This is where it correlates to the passages in the Bible that really tell the whole story of the Bible, if we can bring those up. Uh, of represents Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at that last week. Between is Genesis 3 through Malachi 4. We're just going to camp out on Genesis 3 today. Look at how sin enters into the story. With is really the gospel accounts. God with us represents Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And then God in us, where the whole story is leading to, kicks off in Acts chapter 2 and goes through the rest of the New Testament. This is the whole story of God. This is a framework for you to understand and engage so that you can put your finger at any point in the middle of one of these passages, any one of these books, and have a sense of the greater context for what's actually going on. So today I thought we could talk about this second word, between, how sin comes between us and God. And we've all felt it. We've all wondered about it. And so just by show of hands, I want you to raise your hand if this is true of you. If you have ever asked this question in one form or another or wondered this question in one form or another, and the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever found yourself wondering that? Raise your hand. So we're like, why do bad things happen? So see, we all kind of wonder that. Now let's just be honest. When you're talking about good people, you're really talking about yourself. Let's be honest. The rest of those jerks are on their own. You're really worried about why bad things happen to you. Yes? And we wonder, okay, why do hard things, why do bad things, where does that come from? That's a fundamental wondering that we have in this human experience. How did we get here? Why do we have things like pain and disease? Why do we even have a word like cancer in our vocabulary? Where does that come from? Death, the loss of people we love, the inability to have a child. Where does that, why does it seem like things are so broken? Where did that come from? Why do we have words like divorce? Why do we have things like absentee parents? Where do things like racism come from and sexism come from? How does that even enter into our human experience? How how is it that a city like ours can become so plagued by violence? How did we get here as a city that it seems as though we're almost addicted to violence? How did we get here? Where does the abuse of power stem from? 
Where does that kind of come from? You ever kind of found yourself wondering these bigger level questions? Or here's one. Why is it in an election year that it brings out the worst in people every election year? You notice this? Especially on Facebook. Please stop sending me your opinions on Facebook. That's fine. I'll read your post. That's great. I love who you love. But listen, we get all kinds of weird, right, around there. Why is that? Why does that stir up like I'm for this person and if you're not for this person, you're going to hell. Like what is that? Where does that come from in us, right? Or at a deeper level, I bet you maybe wondered this. You ever wondered why the Midwest is so flat <laughs> and uninteresting as a landscape? And so God-forsakingly cold that it snows on Valentine's Day. Where is a good God in the midst of that? You ever found yourself wondering that? Or maybe at a deeper level, maybe this will resonate for some of you. You ever wonder why it is that the Cubs just can't win? Well, it has to do with sin, and we're going to talk about it today. We're going to, it's a core level thing we want to get into. No matter what the question is, again, all of these questions, and there are many, many more, I think every one of us at certain points and moments in our life have struggled with or wrestled with these questions or have suffered through or suffered from some of the realities of some of these questions. And anytime you found yourself kind of wrestling with these bigger questions about pain and loss and death, you are asking a theological question. You are engaging in a theological conversation. That question, those questions we just walked through are actually biblical questions. They have to do with us and God and what we're going to look at today, which is sin. And that's at the root of the second word and the, you know, four small words, that word between, how sin enters in and separates us from God. We're going to look at sin today. And just as a working definition, just so we're all on the same page, sin is really anything that breaks the peace of God in this world. Sin is anything that breaks, the, the Bible would use the word, the shalom of God, this all-encompassing peace of God. Anything that breaks that peace is sin. Anything that goes against the loving will and way of God is sin. So that we understand that's what we're kind of talking about. It's the breaking of the peace of God, the turning from the will and the way of God. And sin is at the center of, or at least tangentially touches, kind of every one of those questions. And there are sort of cosmic consequences to sin entering into our world that lead to things like sickness and disease and death and loss and pain. They all kind of find their root in sin. So the real question for us to consider today, what I want to lead us through for the next couple of moments, is where does sin begin? Where does sin actually begin? Where does it begin in the story of the Bible? You may not know that. So where does sin begin in the story of the Bible? And where does sin begin in our own hearts? Where does it start? Where does that idea, that kind of breaking, that going against of the peace of God that this world was intended for, where does that come from in us? Now, I want to let you know, I, in preparing for this weekend, uh, I've been very excited to teach this weekend. I have done a ton of of study and research on the subject of sin, uh, mostly because I am not personally familiar with it. Um, I just don't sin, but I understand that a lot of you do, a lot. And so I wanna try and relate to you as best I can today, but have grace for me, I just don't get it. And so uh, what I want you to do is to grab a Bible, if you would, please, and open to Genesis chapter three, it's on page 
two. And would you grab one of those little, there should be a little place for you to take notes uh, with the Bible there, attached to the Bible there, a little place for you to take notes. Do you see that sheet? You can pull that out. It's so that you can kind of keep up and maybe dive in a little bit deeper later. If you have questions, you can jot them down. This is big stuff. We're going to walk through where sin comes from. And we're starting Genesis chapter 3. Again, it's page 2 in the Gray Bible. Let me give you some quick context. Last week, we talked about the creation of everything from God. So there was nothing, and then God creates everything. And, and out of that, God creates this world, and God creates all the animals in this world. And every time God creates something at the end of every day, he says, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. But then the finale of the creation story is you and me as human beings. And it, when God gets to us and creates us, God says, oh, that's very good. That's very good because God created us to be in relationship with him. But one of the things we didn't touch last week is that God says to Adam and Eve after creating them, after giving them free reign and free rule of the world he created, after in fact he instructed them to take care of, to be caretakers of this world and those, all the animals within it. God says, now listen, there is one thing I want you to know. There's a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, whether this was a literal tree or a metaphorical tree, we're not totally sure. But God sets aside a space and he says, listen, enjoy everything here. But this tree, this space, I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to have its fruit. Because if you do, you will die. It's not for you. Now, first pass, you can read that and go, well, that seems kind of cruel. Like, isn't God kind of setting them up? Actually, what God is doing is a very, very, very loving thing. Because God, in so doing, is creating a context for what we would come to call free will. You've heard of this idea of free will? Where you actually have a choice. By placing a tree in the center and saying, enjoy everything else, just not this one tree. God then is creating a choice. You have the ability to choose. Why is that a loving thing? Because you know that there is no loving relationship without in the absence of choice. In the absence of choice, there is no loving relationship. Any loving relationship has to have you have to be able to choose. And every choice comes with the possibility of rejection. And so what God is saying here is I'm not creating slaves, mindless slaves to just sort of do what I want, be my robots in the world. I want to have a loving relationship with you. And so I'm going to give you the ability, the power to choose and even to reject me. And so that's where our story picks up in chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent who's also Satan. So if you're familiar with Satan, the devil, Lucifer was actually an angel, rebelled against God, tried to take the throne from God in heaven, was banished from heaven, put on earth. And now here he is showing up in the story in Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent, also Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. Hit pause real quick here by show of hands. How many of us hate or at least don't like snakes? You just don't like snakes. All right, if your hand isn't up, what is wrong with you that you're into snakes? That's just weird, but we'll talk about that later. All right, here's the deal. For those of us who don't like snakes or who hate snakes, I want you to think about the next sentence that enters into the Bible. Then he said to the woman, so now snakes can talk. Add that to your nightmares at night, moving right along. He said to the woman, did God, what's the word? Did God, you might want to circle that in your Bible because this is where we see the deception kick into the story. Did God really say? I mean, did he really say? And now look what he says here, that you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? No. 
So already there's sort of a double deception going on. Come on, come on. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden, friends? This is Satan's oldest trick in the book. Literally his oldest trick in the book. <laughs> Literally. To get you to question the goodness of God. To undermine the integrity of the wisdom and the way of God. It's his oldest trick in the book. Did God, I mean, did God really say that? He still does it to this day, right up to this day. His first trick in the book still does it right up to this day. I mean, come on, does God really care that you tend to exaggerate every story you tell? You make the truth sound better so that people will like you and think your life is more interesting, especially on social media. Does God really care that you stretch the truth? Does God really care that you said to your boss that the work was all done, but you know it's actually not, and now you're going to kind of have to work behind the scenes or sort of keep the balls rolling to keep his attention off of you? Does God really care? Does God, God understands your work environment, so surely God doesn't really care that you have to kind of like stretch the truth to make work work. Does God really care? Does God really, I mean, does he really care that you like to go out and have a good time. I mean, if he's a good God, what's wrong with having a good time? Does God really care that you love? I mean, you're not hurting anyone. So does God really care that you love to have a good time so much so that you can't even remember what you did? God doesn't really care that, about that kind of stuff, does he? I mean, does God really care? Come on, does God really care that you're still kind of holding on to your prejudice? You're still holding on to your story about Muslims? I mean, he probably agrees with you, right? Does God really care that you're still holding on to your prejudice and your preference against why? You have to even ask the question, do black lives matter? Does God really care about your opinion and how you spout your opinion about Republicans or about Democrats, come on, does God really care about that kind of stuff? He doesn't really care what you say, especially online. I don't even think God's online. <laughs> does God really care about your opinions, your story about gay folks? Does God really care? I mean, because after all, you're right, right? At least according to you. You see what he does? Does God really care? Does God really care? He gets you to question the goodness of God to undermine the integrity of the wisdom and the will and the way of God. It is his oldest trick in the book and he's playing it on Eve right here in this moment. So let's see what her response is. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, no, 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 no. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That's actually what God said. And you must not touch it or you will die. So she responds to that little trick with the truth. And look what he says to her. Oh, come on. You won't certainly die. Do you really think? I mean, why would God create you only to kill you? You see what he's doing here? Come on, you're, you haven't even read the fine print. There's no way you're going to die, the serpent said to the woman. For listen, here's the real truth. Here's what you don't know. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will, this is a very important phrase I want you to pay attention to. And you will what? Be like God. You will be like God. He's holding out from you. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. Because you're going to get all his power. You're going to get all his insight. You're going to get all his wisdom. And you will be like God, knowing good and 
evil. That's why God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because you'll be like him. And that's a threat to him. So if you want to know where sin begins, it's right here. You will be like God. It's the belief that you are God. And that you get to call your own shots and you get to do things your own way and you have to do God's job for him and that God is not holding out on you and God doesn't have enough for you and that God is not good enough and that God doesn't understand what you need. And so you're gonna do whatever you have to do to get what you want when you want it. And if you can't get what you want when you want it, then you'll take it if you have to. Because you and I fundamentally believe, if we're really honest, there are places in our lives where we believe, I am just like God. I call the shots. I'm in charge. I'm the captain now. That's how each of us feels. If we were to be really, 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 really honest, each one of us holds out to places in our life where we believe that we are God. And listen, this is what we're going to see over the next couple of moments. And my hunch is you've seen it over the course of your life. Things get flawed. I mean, really flawed when you believe that you're God. Things get flawed. Things get sideways. Things go upside down. People get hurt. You get hurt. When you believe that you're God, that's when things get flawed. When you put your needs above his needs or her needs or your kids' needs and you believe that you are the most important person in the world, you'd never say it that way, but that's how you act. That's when things get flawed. When you can tear someone down with your words, I mean literally tear them down with your words. They don't even hear you. You're in another car with the windows up, but you are letting them know their worth in this world. That's when things get flawed. When you objectify someone else to satisfy your own needs. That's when things get flawed. We would never say it out loud, but if you were to look at some of my choices and my actions, you might conclude that I believe that I'm God and that it's my job to do his job for him, specifically with certain areas in my life. So the question for us to consider halfway through this message is, is there anywhere where you are right now believing that you are God? I mean, just be honest for a second. You're in church. You've come this far. Let's just go all the way. <laughs> is there anywhere that you are believing that you are God? How about with your schedule? How about with your finances? How about with your relationships, in your relationships? Any unhealthy habits or addictions? You'd never call them that, but addictions you work so hard to manage, could it be that you are believing somehow that you're in charge, that you're God, that your way is better than his way, that he is somehow holding out for you so you gotta get what you can get while you can? We all, all of us, end up getting everything all kinds of flawed when we believe that we are God. And that's what happens in this story with Adam and Eve. We see it actually in verse Six, we see what happens when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, both nutritious and delicious, uh, and also desirable, and this is important, for gaining wisdom, right? That's what she saw there. Oh, wait, this is not only like good food. There's, thou there's all thousands of trees that are good for food. This one's special because I can gain wisdom that for some reason God's holding out on me. God won't give to me. So she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Now look at this, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. 
their eyes were opened. And they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made a covering for themselves. Very powerful moment. Something enters into the story that had never existed in this world before. And it's shame. They saw themselves differently now. Again, like if you showed up here naked today, we'd all notice. We would all notice. My hunch is you would too when you stepped outside. But they lived in a world with no shame. There was nothing to hide. Never even thought twice. And yet now, the knowledge of good and evil, shame comes with it. And they look at themselves and they go, I have to cover myself up. I am not good enough. It's very interesting what happens, what enters into the story in that moment. Their eyes were open, it says, and they saw something that no one had ever seen before. They saw for the very first time that there was now a space between them and God, a separation, a distance. Things were not like they were the day before sin entered into the story. They saw the space, the separation. And so you can imagine after realizing what they had done and all that had happened, they ran to God and they fell on their knees and confessed, God, we're so sorry for what we've done. Forgive us. Restore us into right relationship with you, just like you do every time you sin, I know. You can imagine that's what they did, right? Nope. Let's look at what they did. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the, and I love this idea, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You could write a book on that sentence right there. That God was that present, literally somehow physically present, intimate, active in the garden, coming to go for a walk with them in the afternoon. How cool is that? But as they heard God coming to go for a walk with them, what did they do? They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man. Look at this question. He says, where are you? Where are you? It's a very important question because God knew exactly where they were and God had already known what had happened in that moment. He's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. He already knew what was going on in that moment, but he calls out to Adam. He says, where are you? What has separated us? What has come between us? And I think what's most fascinating about this question is that in the, the weight of the reality of seeing sin for the first time in the story of God, Adam and Eve's response is to run and hide. But God's response is to pursue. Where are you? I'm coming for you. Because what we get in that one little question is a glimpse into the greatness of the character of God, that he is a persistent pursuer of you. That no matter how far you walk away, no matter how far you run away from God, he is always coming after you, calling out to you. I'm inviting you back. Where are you? Where are you? I am a pursuing God and I desire a relationship with you. When you run from, God runs to. That's just true of who he is. Adam answers God in verse 10. Adam said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I mean, we see it all right there. Shame, fear. And so I hid, God, I hid from an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God. Verse 11, this breaks my heart. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you? Now, for me as a daddy, 
I have to look at this and I go, I get it. It breaks my heart. That God who poured, literally breathed life into Adam and Eve is now having to stare at their backs of rejection towards him. And I would ask the same question, what happened? Who told you that I was not enough for you? Who told you that you were not enough for me? Who told you that shame had to even be a word that you would become familiar with? Who even told you that you were naked? And it breaks my heart to think of how it must have broken God's heart. And for those of you who are parents who've had kids turn your back on you, you know this pain, don't you? Or maybe you're a kid who's turned your back on your parents at some point. You know a little bit about this too. God calling out, wait, what happened? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? And then he asked the question, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Again, he already knows he's wanting them to own up. And look at Adam's profound response in verse 12. Adam says, it was her. She did it. It was, this, it was the woman. There's the woman that you, you got to love that. So if you can't blame her, he's going to blame her. It's your, you put her in here, God. And I've been trying to tell you, she has a weak link. I just, she came at me with the app. I was so confused, right? That's what he's doing. He's blaming. He's deflecting. He's deferring. It's the woman's fault. And you put the woman in here with me, God. So in some ways, you're kind of culpable for this. She gave me some fruit from the tree. And look, I ate it. But look, if anyone's going to take the fall here, God, it should be her. It's her fault. See here, we've already seen shame. We've already seen fear. Now we see blame. And this is what we do. This is how sin separates. Blame enters into the story. And what is blame? Blame is refusing to take responsibility for your wrongdoing. It's not my fault. I mean, it's, not, it's this country's fault. It's our president's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my ex-wife's fault. It's this woman you put in the garden with me. God, it's her fault. Do you see what blame does? It defers and refuses to take responsibility for the wrongdoing that you brought. So Adam won't take responsibility. Even though God asked him point blank, did you eat from the tree? Well, well, she's the one that really made me do it. So then God turns to Eve in verse 13. So what is this that you've done? What is it that you've done? What's happened? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So here she is. Adam already threw her under the bus. She's going to throw the serpent under the bus and say, well, it's not, my, it's not my fault. This serpent deceived me. By the way, why would you put a talking snake in a garden, God? That's a crazy idea. And he deceived me. He's really tricky. And so this little talking snake deceived me into going against you and breaking your will and breaking your way. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it, right? It's refusing to take responsibility for my own wrongdoing. This is what happens when sin enters in and separates. This is how things get flawed when we believe that we're God. Instantly, it's fear, it's shame, and it's blame. And we see it woven all throughout this story. And what we're about to see here in the closing of this story is what a just God and a good God has to do in response to the sin that it entered in. What a God of holiness and a God of grace must do in response to what sin has separated. God lays out some consequences for 
sin. And he starts with the serpent, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, to which I say, amen. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. But it gets way deeper than that, verse 15. And I will put enmity, that word means a like diametrically opposed opposition, two forces that are categorically opposed to each other, working against each other. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And what's he referring to? What he's referring to when he says your offspring and hers, her offspring is anyone who chooses to lovingly submit to the will and the way of God, to trust and obey God. And his is anyone who chooses not to. So God's kind of using some metaphor here to say, I want to put this separation, this distance, this, this really, this fighting against between you and the woman, between your offspring, those who will follow me and those who will not. And then he goes on to say this, and out of her offspring, he, go back one verse, please. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, what is that in reference to? This is the first prophecy in the Bible. And God is speaking to an event that would come tens of thousands of years later. What he's saying here is there will come one out of her offspring, out of through the line of Eve, there will be one who will crush your head. You will strike his heel. You'll think you got him, but he will have the victory. What is that in reference to? What God is referring to here in this garden is a cross so many years away where Satan will believe that he has the victory by defeating and killing Jesus, that he's won because Jesus dies on a cross. But God says, no, 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 no. That's just the battle. I get to win the war because that's part of the plan all along. And I will crush the head of the serpent. I will break sin and death and disease once and for all and forevermore. What went wrong in the garden, Jesus will make right at the cross. What sin separated, Jesus will save and redeem and restore and renew. He will crush the head of sin and death and disease once and for all. God has given us a powerful promise even at the end of the garden. So then he turns to the woman and he offers this. To the woman he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Any women here who have felt mild to moderate pain in childbirth can thank Eve for that. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. A lot to say here in this, but I want you to pay attention to this last sentence. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Just real quick, the way that God set things up in the garden between Adam and Eve was for a partnership, that they were to work in partnership, equal partnership with God and with each other. That's how things were set up. That's the way that they operated until sin entered in. And now as part of the consequential curse to sin, God says things have changed. Things are not as they were supposed to be. And now you men will try and rule over women, but that's not how things are supposed to be. So men, anytime you try and flex your authority over your wife or over your girlfriend, over your women, do you know that all you're doing is participating in a part of the curse that occurred when sin entered into the story? That's not actually how you were created to live. We're actually created to live in harmony, in equal partnering with God and with each other. And one day, 
at a cross and an empty tomb, this will be made right. This curse will be broken. And Jesus will restore men and women to their equal status before God and with each other. You were made by God to partner, not to rule over one another. And this is where sexism and eventually racism, genocide, all of it stems from this idea that one of us gets to rule over the other. That's a part of the curse, not a part of the plan. Moving forward, he says to the man, to Adam, because you listened to your wife. You ate the fruit. You did it. You took it from the tree about which I commanded you not to, that you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it'll produce, and you'll eat the plants of the field. And then he goes on to say this really encouraging word. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. God referencing Adam's creation, where God scooped up dirt and then breathed life into it and formed Adam out of it. And so here's what we get. God saying, Okay, well, here's part of the consequential curse because of sin that has entered in. Now, it's going to be a struggle in this world. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to work for it. Work before this moment was something to be delighted in with God, partnering with God to care for this world, but now it's going to be work. Like, work's going to feel like work. And it's going to be hard. And there's going to be struggle. And now there's death that enters into the story, disease, your life will come to an end because of the consequence of sin. I think it's really important to point out that, that God actually gives consequences. There are consequences to our sin. I think for a lot of times when we come to face our sin in the ways that we break the peace of God, go against the loving will and loving way of God, I think the thing I want, at least most often, is that God who just erases everything and makes it all better so we can pretend like it never happened. You know that, God? But God says, no, there are actually consequences to your sin. Every sin has consequences. Every one of us has to take responsibility for our wrongdoing in this world. Sometimes it's personal, and you are the sole sufferer of your sin. But sometimes it affects those around you, those you love, your spouse, your partner, your kids, coworkers. Sometimes our sin can affect generations upon generations. There are consequences to sin. Look, our, our kids, uh, this last week, we were, I won't say which one, but one of them had a complete and utter epic meltdown. And we were at school, I was picking them up, and uh, one of them just kind of just had a brilliant display of disobedience. And right in the school hallway, and so I was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, hit one, the other one. It just happened. It just happens because our kids are awesome kids. And so that happened. And so I went, whoa, that's not okay. That's not cool. Like, what we, no, that's not, we don't do it. That's not how we do things in our family. I said, now look, right away, you owe, you know, your sibling an apology. You need to ask for their forgiveness. And so, you know, that like kid, like begrudging forgiveness, like, sorry, will you forgive me? You know, that real heartfelt thing. Got a couple of those. And eventually felt like it was close enough to heartfelt. And so we go, okay, okay. And listen, 
hey, here's the consequence. You can't act, just act a fool at school. That's not okay. Here's the consequence. Uh, no media the rest of the day. We give our kids like a little window of media that they can use either their iPad or watch a show. I'm like, you just lost media for the rest of the day. There's a consequence. You don't just get to act this way. That's not how we do it in our family. And so there's a consequence to that. And then I said, you know, listen, I want to let you know, kind of, this is all in the hallway. Kids walking by, all kinds of crazy. I go, listen, look, grab, you know, this one by the shoulder. And I said, I forgive you. I want to let you know, daddy forgives you. I love you. I forgive you. But I want to let you know the consequence stands. Well, they decided by the time we got home to give me a consequence for giving them the consequence and put on the silent treatment the rest of the afternoon. Not a word spoken to me, just a lot of angry handwritten notes. <laughs> I would like some saltines and like sliding those across. <laughs> please, you know, slide it. Because they still have to say please, even in a note. You know, and that lasted till about dinner. Now listen, the loving dad in me, the one who loves his kids, do you think at any point I want to say, ah, you know what, I get it, we're good, consequence off, you don't have you can go get your iPad or you can go watch that show you've been wanting to watch. Of course I did. But being a loving parent doesn't mean that there's no consequences. Being a loving parent, as far as I can understand, means I'm going to hold you the consequences, but I'm going to extend grace and love to you. There are still consequences, realities, responsibilities that we have to own. But that doesn't mean that you are out of my love. That doesn't mean that I love you any less. And this is what we see in the garden, that God is a perfect parent, a loving parent who says there are consequences to your sin. Every sin, in fact, comes with consequences. Every sin comes with consequences. No matter how big, no matter how small, every sin comes with consequences. But every sin is covered by grace. This is the good news. Every sin comes with consequences. But every sin is covered, thank you God, by grace. So that you can be forgiven. Doesn't mean that we don't still have responsibility to take. Doesn't mean that we are still, to, you know, have to take responsibility for our wrongdoing. But we can be forgiven and made whole with God. And the only way that that's actually possible is because of what God alluded to in Genesis 3.15. That one would come who would crush the head of sin and death and pain and suffering. And that that would be the ultimate defeat, the ultimate victory for Jesus. And because of that, every sin could be covered by grace. I'm still responsible for the consequences, but God's responsible for forgiveness and grace. And this is what he extends to us, and this is what he extends to you, and this is what he extends to me. That you can actually be made right with God because of what Jesus has done. That, listen to this, that no matter, every, I mean, no matter how far you've walked away, every time you walk away, God will always make a way for you. Every time you walk away, every time you pretend to be God, every time you get things flawed, every time sin enters into the story and fear and shame and blame become a part of your narrative, every time you walk away, God will always, always, always make a way for you. And what I love about the timing of this sermon and what we're going to do in this closing moment is that we get to see and celebrate how God made a way for you and for me. We're going to do that through a sacrament called communion. 
it's the reminder of the way that God made through Jesus. What Adam and Eve could not have possibly perceived when God spoke those words, we get to stand on the other side of the cross and bear witness to and celebrate and be changed by today. So I'm going to ask the host team to come forward right now and they're going to pass out the elements of communion, the body and the blood, the bread and the cup. And all you need to do right now is just take the bread and take the cup and hold on to it. You don't need to do anything else with it. Just take the bread and take the cup. And we're going to, in a moment, just pause to get a reminder of this reality that we get to live in, that God has made a way for you and for me through Jesus. We get to celebrate that together today. So take the bread, take the cup. It's gluten-free bread, so everyone gets to play. And then I'll come back in a moment and lead us through communion.